Blog Talk Radio. This is Cale Brown. Now, I didn't play a doctor on TV, but I will prescribe Brandon's buzz for absolutely anybody who wants to know what's really going on. Hey, guys, this is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. This is Taylor Dane, and you are listening to the one and only Brandon Buzz. Hi, this is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. This is Linda Dano. I'm on Brandon's Buzz, and I have to tell you, what a fun hour I just had. Ah, this is a great kid with a wonderful heart and soul. You listen every day. I know I will. Hey, hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you are checking out Brandon's Buzz right now. Hi, everyone. This is Eric Martin from the band Mr. Big. I'm live and kicking on Brandon's Buzz. Hi, this is Dave Primero, and you're going to love buzzing with Brandon's Buzz. Hey guys, welcome back to Brandon's Buzz. I am Brandon. It's Tuesday, July 12th, 2011, 10 p.m. in the East, 7 p.m. out West, 9 p.m. here in Texas, and I'm thrilled to be back with you here on The Buzz and back with a scorcher tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest tonight is a veteran of the soap beat for some two decades and more now, and is probably best known for her brilliantly witty, almost always spot-on, it's only my opinion column that she writes weekly for Soap Opera Digest, where she, with loving but brutal honesty, always lays out exactly what she thinks about the crazy, kooky world of daytime dramatic television. And that brutal honesty <laughs> and frankness has just been extended into the world of publishing, which she has just conquered with her fabulously dishy new book, Afternoon Delight, Why Soaps Still Matter. And she's come by the buzz tonight to give us an exclusive sneak peek at what awaits us within the pages of this tome. She is sassy, she is smart, and you already know that's not only my opinion. What a thrill to welcome here for the first time the captivating Carolyn Henze. Thank you. What an intro. Thank you. How are you doing, my dear? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. It's a great thrill to speak with you. I've been a big fan for a long time. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. So I usually kick things off by setting the table. So let's get all this out of the way. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Where did you go to school? Let's get that stuff set. I was born in Westchester County, New York. I went to Indiana University. I, my first job was at the Chicago Tribune, and I moved to the New York Daily News after about four years, and I worked there for about seven until we went bankrupt <laughs> the first time. <laughs> and then uh, Lynn Leahy called me up. She'd read my TV stuff in the Daily News and asked me to have lunch in 1992, and we had lunch, and she offered me a job, and I took it, and uh, I've never looked back. It was been the most fun. And it, the, the hardest thing was I was at a Daily Newspaper, and Digest was biweekly then. It was every other week. Do you remember that? Absolutely. So it seemed like such a slow pace, but pretty soon after I got there, it went weekly, and then that sort of, you know, things moved faster, 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 you know, to where we are now, which is, you know, constant movement and change every day, as you know. And, you know, that was around the time that, that people in publishing decided that there was gold in soap publications, so all of a sudden, everybody had a soap publication. Yes, there were many, many magazines back then, and a lot of competition, which I think I always think is good. And so, uh, you know, I assume that you were a fan just like the rest of us, and that's that's how you got into this wild and woolly world of soaps. Yeah, well, yes, I had watched As the World Turns with my grandmother, and uh, when I went to college, of course, Luke and Laura, that's such a standard. My whole book 
you know, how'd you get hooked? Luke and Laura, Luke and Laura, Luke and Laura. Everybody I asked has pretty much the same answer, except Michelle Stafford got hooked on Dealey on Ryan's Hope. But uh, that was the time, and that was the heyday of soaps, 30 million people. And, you know, I, I was able to buy VCR with one of my very first Chicago Tribune paychecks. So I could keep up, and I really never missed, never missed ABC. And then when I got my job, I started watching CBS and NBC, and now, of course, I watch them all every day. We're talking about this new book, Afternoon Delight. First of all, congratulations on adding published author to your resume. I mean, I know how how difficult it is to write a blog post, so this is a stupendous accomplishment. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, 50,000 words was slightly more than the 900 I write for Digest every week, so <laughs> thank you. You know, you've written in your Digest column for years now, when I write my book, or you know, such and such will get its own chapter when I write my book, and I always thought you were half-joking when you said that. I mean, was this book idea always in the back of your mind as something you wanted to do at some point, or was it something that you know, kind of started out as a pipe dream and turned into reality? Well, both. I always thought someday I would write a book, but the, when the rumors picked up speed that they might be canceling All My Children One Life to Live last fall, it just seemed so important. How do people not understand that soaps matter and the connection that fans have? And how can I get that message out more than I'm doing every week in Digest and, you know, blogging and tweeting and talking and, you know, opening my mouth all over the place? And, you know, I, I knew this guy, Brian Howie, through Mutual Friends, and I was just talking to him, and he said, let me publish a book. And uh, we talked, and, you know, we signed a deal, and I just started writing. And, you know, of course, I turned the book in April 1st, and April 14th, ABC announced they were canceling yeah. All My Children and One Life. So that was a little bit of a scramble. <laughs> so the end, of, the couple chapters at the end had to be rewritten. So it's, it was delayed a little bit. It's out now on Kindle and Nook, and it's getting mailed on hardcover this week. You know, that's not really my fault. I mean, it's ABC's fault, but I'm the one that said we've got to rewrite all this and <laughs> Add even more ideas on how to save soaps and why they matter. I have a whole chapter 14 on how to save soaps and, you know, what we can do to make the numbers work to keep them on the air forever. Uh, can you tell me how radically different the book changed between the original draft that you handed in and, and what we're reading now? My prognosis, I have a whole chapter on where all the soaps stand now and my prognosis for them. And I had had One Life to Live as a show with the best outcome and prognosis. I mean, it's the best, in my opinion, right now. It's the best show on the air. It's the best produced. Frank Valentini's been there for 26 years. You know, I mean, no one has the kind of continuity with the show that Frank does. And all of his stars are still on it. You know, I just wrote an opinion column about, you know, all my children had to bring back all their stars for the show. And One Life stars never left. There's such good continuity, and I mean, Slayback, and you know, Chuck Watkins comes and goes, and Robert Strasser's coming on, and you know, oh, Woods has been there 30 years, and you know, oh, even yeah. when Richie left and eventually passed away, they successfully recast with Jerry Verdorn, and they're so, so Frank pays such attention to history, and I just thought it was the best show and had the best prognosis, and here's this whole chapter, and then oh, by the way, it's getting canceled, and I had to rework that a little bit, <laughs> just a, just a skosh. <laughs> Can I mean, this is probably a dumb question, but can you tell me how different writing this book was from writing your column? I mean, did, did you use the same basic tenets in terms of crafting both the column and the book, or, or did you have to uh, adapt your mindset to different philosophies for writing the book than you do for the magazine? I mean, can you tell me the differences? Hmm, that's a really good question. I try to give my column the theme every week, you know, the theme of, you know, why don't we celebrate holidays anymore, or what's happened to all the veterans, or, you know, some kind of theme where I can rope in all six of the shows, and in the book, it was more a whole entire chapter had to have a theme, and some of them are sort of funny, 
but some of them are serious. I mean, why are there no black people on soaps? You know, why are there no gay people on soaps? Well, let's research it and go through the history and interview people and figure it out. It's wrong, but why is it like that? You know, and that's those are serious topics. I, I, I crack a lot of jokes in my column, and I, I'm a little sarcastic sometimes. I don't know if you've noticed. But with <laughs> a serious topic in a book, you know, you have to approach it from a more, I mean, I'm a fan, but I'm also an expert. So I had to try to put my expert hat on and say, why is this the way it is, and what can we do to change it, which hopefully I did. You set forth quite a thesis in the subtitle of your book here, and, you know, I'm not asking you to give away the farm, but, you know, for the skeptics in this crowd, I mean, for those who have never watched soaps and for those who once did and have walked away for good and, you know, even for those of us, those final few of us who are hanging on to the bitter end, tell me why soaps still matter in your view. They are something you can count on every single weekday, no matter where you are in the country or what you're doing, what situation you're in, you can turn on your TV and there are all your favorite people right in your living room. So the connection is unparalleled anywhere else in the whole lineup. I'm sorry. For a lot of people, they're family. You know, there's some testimonials in the book from fans who say why the shows have mattered to them. One person says, you know, it's, it, they remind me of the best time in my life when my kids were little and, you know, I was watching, you know, and she named a bunch of characters in Guiding Light back in the 70s and 80s. It's family to many, many people, and it's a destination, you know, the five hours a week minimum for millions of people. And no other medium has that, and no other medium ever will have it. You know, it's so funny. In, in your book, there's a great uh, little vignette from Michelle Stafford who talks about, uh, you know, how she grew up watching Delia on Ryan's Hope and then Karen Woolock on One Life and, and how she wanted to be just like them, and she ended up being just like them. And, you know, it's, it, it's great to see that because we hear from so many stars saying, you know, oh, I don't watch soaps. I don't, I don't watch the other shows. I don't, I don't know what's going on. And, and it's great to hear someone saying, damn right, I watch soaps and, and uh, you know, learn from them and, and was inspired by them. Right, exactly. And she also talks a little bit about how strange it was to have been such a Luke fan and loved Tony Geary, the actor, growing up. And then she won the Best Actress Emmy opposite him when he won Best Actor. And, you know, I, I didn't put it in the book, but I asked her, you know, were you like all star start that night? She said, well, I had a moment with him, but I didn't want to say, oh, my God, I grew up watching you because a lot of times it makes the actor feel old. Exactly. You know, if she said, I grew up watching you, then that implies they might be slightly older than you are. But she said it was really such a surreal moment to be standing there holding an Emmy next to her complete idol. But you're right, it's it's nice to have, I mean, Rena Sofer, you know, in, in my, my chapter on why, you know, don't call soaps a training ground, you know, talks all about how dare you. They're the hardest form of work that there is, and they're the best job for, you know, working moms. You bet. So don't call them a training ground. I mean, it, you know, Erica Slavak and Susan Lynch have spent their whole lives on them and made tons of money and been hugely successful. So that's yeah. not a training ground, so stop saying it. You know, what I love about the book is that it's very dishy on the one hand, but it's also very informative and illustrative of what soaps are. I mean, how all their moving pieces work together to create what we see every day and of how they came to hold such significance in the culture. You're clearly now a student of the genre, and, you know, you're as, you're as good a person to ask as any of this. In 1981, there were 14 soaps on the air. In 91, there were 12. In 2001, there were 10. Now we are in 2011. There are six and soon to be four. I mean, how in blue hell did we get to this spot? Oh, boy, I think I have to write another book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, a lot of network executives messed up, in my opinion. They did not. Back in the day, and I, I don't know if it was the 90s or more the 80s, but there were writer development programs. Do you remember that? Absolutely. And they would bring people into network programs where they would teach you how to be a writer and develop you. 
And a lot of the writers we have today started through those programs. I mean, Agnes Nixon, you know, in my chapter on, on the heroes of soaps, which is, you know, Erna Phillips, Agnes Nixon, and Bill Bell, and, of course, Doug Marlin, you know, they were all trained by other people. Erna trained Agnes and Bill Bell. You know, um, Doug Marlin was trained also under Erna and a little bit Agnes. They got to learn their craft next to a master over a period of years before they took over their own show. And now it's just... You know, I hate to say it, but it's a lot of the same names, you know, circulating around and around and around. And, you know, I've never met David Kreisman. I'm sure he's a lovely person, but three soaps went down on his watch. you got to go. Sorry. Whatever your stories were, they didn't connect with the audience, and they didn't save the show. So maybe it was network interference, like a lot of people say. Maybe he wasn't allowed to do what he wanted to do. But, you know, three strikes are out. Like, where's the next guy, you know, not being trained because there's no more writer development program, and there's the, the names are all the same over and over and over and over, and I think that was the biggest problem with the network executives that they had no imagination and they didn't look outside. Except for Hogan, they haven't looked outside in two decades. You know, it's it's a great point. Where are the novelists being brought in, like Michael Malone or the screenwriter right. Michael Malone are being brought in? Right. But even Michael Malone, after a couple of years, kind of fizzled out. You know, he had cool. great, great stories. He created Luda Moody. You know, he had the whole, I mean, what was that, 92, 93, the whole, you know, Todd and Marty, the, you know, gang rape at the fraternity house and all that. But after a couple of years, even he kind of like, okay, he went on and, you know, left the show and did other things. So where are the Doug Marlins, the people that just burn for soaps and want to spend their entire careers writing for these characters? You know, I remember in the summer of 2001, Felicia Bear was let go from World Turns, and she came back to ABC in an executive position, and she gave your pal Michael Logan, you know, the interview that shook the soap world to its core, really. I mean, she really let it rip, and she pissed off a lot of people, I think. But, you know, there was one thing she said at that time that, you know, haunted me and continues to. Bear in mind, this was June of 2000, 11 years ago, and at that time there were still 10 or 11 shows on the air, and, and she said right. – you know, the soap industry is in severe danger of ending. We must get off this ratings downslope, or daytime is going to be left with three or four soaps tops. And I remember thinking at that time, that's crazy. I mean, they, you know, they're really going to start dropping like flies, and, and, you know, guess what? We're about six months away from having exactly four shows left. And I'll bet you anything that if Logan had pressed her to name what shows would be the last one standing, she would have said General Days, Bold, and Young and the Restless. And, you know, I wonder how in the hell she could have seen what was coming a decade ago when everybody else literally had their heads in the sand. I don't think that a lot of the network executives give soaps the credit that they have deserved as far as the numbers and the connection. I mean, you can tune into a game show or not, or a drug show or not, and it doesn't matter. But if you miss an episode of your soap, it matters. You know, I think some of these men who don't really watch soaps don't understand all of those dominoes that lead to a show, a soap opera being a success. They think, well, I can't get any credit for these soap operas, you know, when, they're, when they have a new job at a network because they've been on the air for 40 or 50 years. Oh, it's my grandmother's show. Oh, it's kind of over. What new hot, great thing can I bring? And, you know, 72 judge shows later, where are we? I mean, there's what, Judge Judy is a hit, and the rest, you know, I don't think so. And no one's DVRing judge shows. I mean, I don't, let me put it this way. I don't know anybody who DVRs judge shows or game shows. You miss it, you miss it. And it'll be there tomorrow, and, and you, you won't be any the worse for having right, this. Right, exactly. Nothing matters day to day. So I just think a lot of them didn't understand the genre. And, you know, frankly, people want to make their mark. You know, you get a new job. What can I do that's different? How am I going to lay my claim? And instead of just revering what was already there and preserving it, there were so many things they could have done to improve soap ratings or figure out ways to fix it. How are all the data shows are doing so well? You know, what's it called, Lorraine and Sir? Because millions and millions and millions of viewers, it's a soap opera. So how have they figured it out and we haven't? Oh, yeah, they have romance and we don't anymore. 
you know? <laughs> Little things like that, like people kissing instead of dying. You know, you you uh, you made reference to this earlier. It's one of the few businesses on earth, this crazy soap business, where you can be fired for being horrible in one place and then hired to do the exact same job somewhere else. You've got a great quote from from Hunt Walker's yeah. book. He said, "Sometimes it feels like working in an insane asylum on a submarine." Yeah, Hunt Block. He's so funny. I couldn't explain a lot of what he said. I have to tell you. <laughs> I bet. Torsten Kay and Hunt Block were my very favorite interviews for the book, and I only used maybe. 20% of what they said, because some of it is like, oh, come on. It's funny, but I really can't. I can't, I can't print it. <laughs> I need to protect you. You're my friend. <laughs> Part of me wonders if one of the reasons we got to this place in time is that the people who have made soap opera over time simply took for granted the fact that they were always going to have jobs no matter what, because they couldn't conceive that this genre would actually go away at some point. I think that's a really good point, honestly. I mean, Look, the Bells are obviously doing something right, and they, you know, Bill Bell trained Bradley to be the boss of Bold and the Beautiful, and Maria Arena Bell, you know, was his intern at D&B before she married his son, Billy Jr., who went Bell Phillip Productions. And, you know, they've done a really good job as a family of training and learning and, you know, trying to keep the staples of soap opera. I mean, if you look at romance, be it, I mean, no, nothing's better than B&B. I think it moves a little too fast. I mean, Rich, you know, the, the ink is still wet on Rich's divorce from Brooke, and he's just married Taylor. Again. But you can't say it's not romantic and beautiful and visually lush, and they still do locations, and, you know, they still do hearts in the sand with the waves coming in and, you know, all those kind of fun romantic staples of soap operas that we love that a lot of other shows have let go by the wayside because the bosses don't want to spend the money on it because they don't understand it. You know, one of the most bracing moments in your book comes in Chapter 11 where you're talking in depth about the O.J. Simpson trial, and you do about as fine a job of of crystallizing the precise effect that that trial had on daytime television, as I've read anywhere. And you present a graphic where you show the ratings for each soap, the season directly before O.J. and the season directly after O.J. You know, it's it's... It's one thing to hear, as we all have, that ratings dropped, but it's another thing entirely to see in black and white right there on a page to see that All My Children dropped two full ratings points, to see that you know, Y&R and One Life and GH and Guiding Light all dropped a point and a half. But it's just staggering to see it laid out like you have. It actually bummed me out to research all that. I didn't realize it was as bad as it had been. And then I interviewed Scott Barton, who was the publicist for General Hospital back then, and he explained to me what it really meant to them, like from a PR standpoint, that you're, you know, you've got, let's say the nurses' balls coming up, you know, which was a huge thing, or some of those kind of events, and you're trying to build, you know, back then, you you know, GH is getting on ET and, you know, all these entertainment shows, and uh, there were articles in People Magazine and items and in all these places, and then the shows didn't air. So after a while, the media outlets were saying, well, I can't give you this press because you don't, you can't promise me that the show's going to air or that's going to air on the day you say. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you know, half the country is preempting the soaps for OJ and the other half isn't. So then the people in the area where it was preempted, the show was just lost. So it, for, it was the most frustrating time for fans because every day you turned on the TV, you didn't know if your show would be on or not, if you get half of it if it would, you know, air in Louisiana and not California. You know, there was it was such no rhyme or reason, really, really destructive to the genre, and nobody gave any, there was no long-term plan. Okay, when the trial's over, now then what do we do? And then, as I said in the book, the worst thing they did was took everybody on the trial, and then they went, oh, holy cow, we've, we've lost so many ratings. Let's just cut the trial and go back to the shows. But the trial wasn't over, and then they sent everybody to E to watch the end of the trial. We're so fans. We want to see how it ends. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, I was talking recently to Susan Betso Horgan, who was the executive producer of One Life during that period of time. Sure. And some of the things she said were just amazing. I mean, she said, you know, that the network brass would show her charts and, and you know, graphs and things where the networks had, say, three quarters of the pie and cable had a quarter. And then all of a sudden during during the climax of OJ, cable had three quarters of the pie and the networks had a quarter. I mean, you know, it seems as though there's something to the idea that the trial and the interruptions it created really for the first time on a mass scale impelled people to grab their remotes and really start to check out what else was available just by flipping the channel. Well, they were, you know, you're in the habit of soaps and you're in the habit of, you know, Channel 7 every day at 2 o'clock to watch One Life, but then the show's preempted for a week and, you know, you're home or, you know, you're a new mom or something. Well, what else is on? I'm bored of this trial. And all these new cable channels are popping up and every day you click there's something new on, that's, that's problem. <laughs> you know, you want the continuity and the eyeballs like, hey, come back every day at 2 o'clock. We'll be here. We're your family. You can count on us. And the thing is that trial was a real soap opera. I mean, it had everything. Yeah. Unfortunately, it did. Didn't have a lot of romance, though. You got to, you got to give me that. <laughs> Not a lot of romance in those murders. <laughs> you know, at at the very heart of this book, you're very, very hard on Ellen Wheeler and Chris Gatlin for whatever roles they played in the cancellations of, of you know, Guiding Light and World Turns, respectively. I mean, did you ever have any moments in the writing of this book where you thought, Jesus, can I really go here? Not really, because I interviewed a lot of people, and everyone kind of said the same thing. And as I very clearly say in the book, I don't think they're bad people, and I don't think they set out to ruin the shows. But the single-minded vision, like, you know, Ellen Wheeler, maybe they, maybe they said to her, you've got one year to completely change this whole entire show, or it's going off the air, and she never told anybody that. But talking to people, it's like, well, PPAC's not really a very good idea, and we're not really saving money, and you're treating the actors kind of like dirt, making them change their clothes in the backseat of cars, and the jumpy cams, you know, make it hard to follow, and are kind of nauseating, and we can't really hear the dialogue with all the outdoor microphones and the pouring rain under the bridge, and she just, you know, full speed ahead, you know, and maybe successful people have to be that way, but there wasn't a lot of listening to other opinions going on. And with all the people I spoke to, no one said, well, she listened to my opinion about this, or she, you know, she did agree with us about that. It was all, you know, the Wednesday episodes. I mean, I think I outline pretty clearly in the book how pretty much everybody, everybody, the actors, the other producers, the writers, the press, and the fans were like, these are a bad idea. Soaps are all about continuity, and you're doing a standalone show once a week. I don't care that Billy Lewis is going to the doctor. Where's Reva? Where's Harley? But Tuesday ends, and then Thursday picks up, and Wednesday has nothing to do with it. But there was no giving up on that. It was just full speed ahead. And I think part of the reason soaps have faltered the way they have is because some of the executives didn't want to listen to other people. I'm the boss, my way or the highway. And what made soaps succeed over all these years, as Doug Marlin proved, was you've got a team of writers, what do we want to do, where are we going with this, what's our plan, what's our six-month plan, what's our one-year plan, which actors are we signing? It's a, every single soap is a team effort, and I think the team includes the fans. And if we hate something, then maybe you should rethink it instead of telling us that we're wrong to hate it. I agree with that completely. You know, I um, <sighs> my sense is that the guy was on... Am I exhausting you? <laughs> no. Can you go lie down? <laughs> You know, like, just give us, you know, give us the Snyder Pond. Give me a fake pond with Jack and Carly having a picnic. 
and you know, I think we're seeing some, we're seeing, we're seeing that on on something like Days of Our Lives now. They're putting that show together for peanuts, and you know, the sets are just, they're basically styrofoam. But but it doesn't matter because the actors we like are on the screen every day, and we care about their characters. You're exactly right. I mean, look at Rage. He's been tied up in a chair. Fo Rage has been tied up in a chair for what three months? Well, I don't know. Can we afford a chair, Bob? Well, I think we can, Bill. I mean, that's the set. <laughs> And everyone comes in and, like, gets in the frame with him. And they, you know, there's the chair and the rope and two people, and that's all. There's not even a table. <laughs> I don't care. You know, that poor Brady Pot. How many years have been looking at that? But, you know, there's Caroline behind the bar. I'm in. And that's what we care about. Let me ask you a question. Did you think I was too harsh on Ellen and Chris in the book? You know, I quite frankly thought you were too harsh on Ellen and not harsh enough on Chris. I really did. Okay. As Interesting. I, said, I thought that I thought that – the die was cast for Guiding Light long before Ellen took charge of it. And I think that, that Chris, I just think that he was so single-minded and so completely wrapped up in his tunnel vision that he couldn't see what he was doing to the show. You're right. It was World Turns was in better shape when he took it over than Guiding Light probably. But neither one of them listened. That was That's why I just felt like I could say everything I said in the book because – I mean, I went to people, producers and other actors, and said, you know, stand up for them. Tell me something positive or tell me tell me why I'm wrong, and nobody did. It was like, no, I'm afraid that's right. I'm afraid you're right. No, that's a true story. No, that happened. And they, I mean, when I was editor of Weekly when the shows were going off the air, and they weren't speaking to the show magazines. I mean, I had a column in the Daily News, you know, hey, get, you know, give me an interview in the New York Daily News and tell me why your show's great and what's going to be great about, you know, the upcoming episode where, you know, Reva gets conked on the head and everybody acts the opposite of how they normally act or Billy and Vanessa are getting married or whatever, and they wouldn't do any press. So, you know, if, you're, if you really believe in your show and you really believe in every, all the changes you're making, why won't you talk about it? And then when they did do press, I mean, it was like, like I said, Chris Goutman going in Soap Digest and saying basically, don't write me fan mail, I don't read it. So, I mean, what, well, what kind of thing yeah. does that have to say to, to your constituency, to your audience? Right. That was a pretty big slap in the face. I agree. And, you know, how are you taking over Doug Marlin's legacy who says, you know, number one, listen to the fans? <laughs> I mean, that's your audience. If you don't please the audience, your show's going to go off the air. Oh, wait, it did. <laughs> and then what do you have? You have nothing. You know, I'm not a big fan of conspiracy theories, and I never have been, but I'll tell you, I, and I don't mean to pick on just all my children to the exclusion of, all, of other shows because they've all made some, some boneheaded moves, but I think that children over the past number of years has been hands down the most egregious offender in terms of just, you know, head-scratching decisions, and, and I think you agree with me. I mean, if you look at some of the moves that they've made in the past half decade or so with, you know, Erica Kane becomes a Vegas showgirl and the abortion and the scene where J.R. peed on Josh and the stripper pole and, you know, the poison pancakes – the stuttering murderer, the return of the real Greenlee, quote unquote, uh, Chuck Pratt, you know, the the tornado, Stewart, Zarf, Jamie Lunar, the Beth Ellers disaster, getting rid of, you know, Julia Barr and Torsten and David Canary and Sidney Penny and Katie so cavalierly. I mean, you know, at, at some point you step back and look at this crap, and and I don't see how any reasonable person cannot conclude that ABC was just flat trying to kill the damn show or trying to devalue it so severely to the point that no one would care once the axe actually did fall. <laughs> wow, that was a good list. <laughs> that, that was pretty was complete. Off the top of my head. I mean, I didn't even... Well, I mean, I'd hate to think if your research should have wrote it down, we'd need a two-hour show. 
<laughs> you know, um, a lot a lot has been said in the past few months since this since these latest cancellations were handed down, and I'm wondering if there's even a kernel of truth in the idea that ABC at some point, even though they own these shows and reaping incredible benefits when they succeed, wanted actively one or more of these shows to fail. Well, it certainly seems that way. Look, I don't know what to tell you. There were so many head writers. You know, I knew Chuck Pratt at Melrose Place. I knew him at General Hospital. He seemed like he really cared. He's a perfectly nice, funny guy. And I can see why Brian Franz would hire him for All My Children. He's proven himself at two other successful shows. So when he came in and just made so many boneheaded moves, you know, I mean, I don't think soaps are not Brian Franz's first love. You know, he's he's a very able network executive. He's proven himself over many, many years and, you know, made tons of money. And I think he just kind of let him do what he wanted to do, not realizing that most of those moves were boneheaded, as you say. And kind of by the time it, you know, a big problem with soaps is everything's planned so far ahead. I mean, you do a six-month, you know, story plan. And then you, you know, the scripts are six weeks ahead. And then you film. And then by the time it airs, what's coming is already six months down the pike. I mean, except for B&B, which is Bradley Bell, head writer, executive producer, half-hour show, who can turn on a dime. All the other shows, it's like tur- turning an ocean liner around in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> so once you see something's not working, it takes forever to undo it or turn it around or fix it. You know, like I said in the book with, you know, Best by Pancake, you, you know, let's say you wanted to kill. Let's say Katie made too much money, which I don't think is true, but let's argument say, you know. Let's say she made too much money. You don't know where you're going with Tad and Dixie. You're a little bored. You want to kill Dixie. It gives story to JR. It gives story to David Canary. It gives story to Michael Knight. You know, fine. But it has to pay off. It can't just be, you know, a light of a pancake, falls on the floor, next day share the scene with Babe, and the next day is completely gone off the canvas, and there's no fallout. You know, that was the mistake in all of those stories, is there was, you know, the whole point of, a, of a, an, an event is what happens after the event. It's the reaction to the action. And that I mean, was what Chuck that. Pratt missed. And nobody said, let's find Kill Dixie, make it count, show me a year's worth of story. I mean, everything about soaps is what's, you know, what's fallout. What is fallout? And when there is no fallout, well, then you just killed someone for nothing and made me feel like an idiot for investing, you know, however many 18 years in Dixie, Cooney, la, 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 la 700 married names after that. <laughs> you know, what, then I feel like an idiot. Like, why did I spend all my time watching her and caring about her and invested in her stupid star with dad and all that stuff. It doesn't matter. Don't get me started. We, we, we covered it in the book. We don't need to, you know, upset ourselves here. <laughs> we'll talk about something more positive. Did you like my ideas for how to save soaps, like smaller casts and, you know, some of those ideas? Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know why they're not being talked I mean, I don't know why it wasn't talked about. Let's cut AMC to 30 minutes and cut One Life to 30 minutes and have them share the hour. And then if you do want to bring in this new thing, this new revolution, quote-unquote, for daytime television, then do that. But keep an anchor to the old stuff, too, in case the new stuff just flops and then you're stuck with nothing. Well, exactly. And I mean, one of High Block's ideas, which I wrote about in the book, was guest stars. You know, fine. So, look, Susan Lucci lives in New York. She commutes to L.A. She's been the biggest sport about this whole move. She's done everything they've asked of her. But why not let her be like Tony Geary? You know, I mean, Erica should drive all the story when she's on the show. But, you know, I'm sure she's the highest paid person on that show. So if you need to save money, you know, have her come out for, you know, a month and tape a ton of Erica. And then, you know, give me Zach and Kendall and give me, you know, poor Bianca looking for love and, and uh, you know, three, you know, two or three other stories and, and let her rotate in and out and save that money. 
you know, with one like give us Vicky and Dorian, give us Clint, give us Bo and Nora, and you know, skip the Fords and skip Dina and skip you know all the stuff that that we don't care about. Yeah, but see, your problem is that those guys. I mean, I laid out all the all the salaries in the book, but they don't make very much money. I mean, the, the Fords are probably making twelve hundred a show. You know, whereas I don't know about Eric Slaves, but it's certainly three or four times that at least. So they're trying to make these newcomers popular because they can use them for so much less money. Sure, but you know, I remember, for instance, when when Days cut Deidre Hall a couple of years ago, and I said on this mm-hmm. show, I you know, one Deidre Hall is a, a ten of these you know newbies that can't act aren't worth one Deidre Hall, and so I think that 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 that's proving to be true because. Rumors are flying that Deidre Hall's coming back in, you know, a couple of months, and they're getting rid of, you know, all of these newcomers on days that nobody cares about. So, I mean, there's right. something to the idea that, you know, you you cut it down to the bare essentials of people that fans tell you clearly they want to see, and they will watch if you give them to them, and then you just let the other stuff go. Or make it worth the actor's while, you know. let's. I mean, for example, let's say she's making 10000 a show, and you want to cut her to 6000 a show. But you say, look... We'll put you in two shows a week, but we'll only make you work one day a week. So you'll work one day, but you'll make 12000 but you'll appear on two shows, and each show you'll get paid 6000 I mean, there's ways to make that work financially. And let's hope that someone's listening to your show and they do it. <laughs> <laughs> or they buy my book. <laughs> you know, the fact that One Life, in addition to probably being ABC's best show, has now become ABC's most watched show, does that just make them all look like idiots? I think so. Well, also, their whole argument was, you know, the industry's dying and the numbers are going in the wrong direction. And Well, not one life. And when you add in that, that all my children has lost whatever, 123,000 people in the last year, but one life is up. So not only have they increased their numbers, they've increased them over a lead-in that lost 123,000 people, you know, which is doubly shocking and admirable. As we take this, there are some very strong rumors flying around about the possible futures of, of children and One Life continuing online, and I won't ask you about what you know or don't know about the specifics of that. But you know, if someone does take a leap of faith with these two properties and manages to make them smashing successes all over again, won't ABC just look like utter and thorough fools for mismanaging them and letting them letting you know such iconic and valuable commodities just slip through their fingers? Yes, they will. But I'll bet you they don't ever admit that. You'll get a press release about, oh, the <laughs> demographics of the Chew are so fantastic. You know, 29-year-olds who live on farms with middle names starting with D are up in the demos. You know, I mean, it's going to be some, you know, it's, it always cracked me up when we got the press releases every week from the network because everybody says they're number one, you know. CBS says they're number one in households. NBC says they're number one in 18 to 34. ABC would say they're number one in 18 to 49. And here's me, just decide. Like, all you people get together and decide. Like, I can't print 700 pages in a magazine. Well, this week, everyone's number one. Yay! <laughs> it's ridiculous. So, I mean, I just always go with households because I don't care how old the eyeballs are. Sure. You know, you're, you're watching the show, you're buying my magazine, you're, you're, you know, I don't care. If, you're, if, if you buy my book and you're five or you're 105, mazel. Do you care how old, how old people are to listen to your show? No. Everyone has value, and everyone has money. And why is their money less good if they're over 49 or 34, or in some cases, you know, with passions, you know, 12 to 17 is our target audience. Oh, good, because so many 17-year-olds have tons of money, so that's good. I never understood that, you know. People of all ages have value, so. 
you know, I, I've asked this question to almost all of my recent guests, and in fact, I'm sure my regular listeners are sick to death of me asking this question, and I have not once gotten the answer that I'm looking for, which is probably the surest sign that it's not a good question, but I want to ask you anyway. Uh-oh, okay. ABC is, is seemingly betting the farm here on a new style of programming and a new governing mentality for programming in the daytime hours, and to me, it clearly begs the question, is the stunning, out-of-the-box success of The View the worst thing that could have happened for soap fans, ultimately? No. Because ABC at one time offered a really solid lineup. I mean, I live in New York City, so I, I really can only speak about that. But, you know, you wake up in the morning, Good Morning America solid, Regis and Kelly were solid. You know, The View was really solid. Then you had the soap lineup. Then you had Oprah. You bet. And in between that, you had a really solid local news station. So there was really no reason, except for me, of course, because I love all the soaps, but there's really no reason to change off of ABC. Well, now Regis is leaving. Oprah is gone. You know, Erica Kane is leaving, you know, certainly the ABC lineup, you know, when she turns up on cable or online, that's fantastic. You know, Vicky, Victoria Lord Buchanan is leaving. So now, you know, you've got Tumbleweed running through your lineup. You've got Kelly Ripa and The View and GH, and it's Tumbleweed through all the rest of your lineup. And it's going to bite them. You know, I mean, I have this Facebook fan page, which I love, and all these people, you know, write comments all day long, and we talk about storyline, and, you know, I try not to, I, I don't let people get personal on there, but, of course, tons of people are commenting about the book and the Kindle and the Nook and all that, but, you know, one of the things on, on that page is all the immediate comments from people, and somebody posted last week that there's a West Virginia ABC affiliate with a Facebook page asking, will you watch the show? <laughs> and 78 people said no, and one person said yes. So now, it, like, why did they put that page up if they're not concerned, right? You bet. So if 78 people said no and one said yes, it does not bode well for the Jew. Absolutely. But I do think it bodes very well for General Hospital because if the tumbleweed is knocking over everything, that's the one soap you have left that still has, you know, millions and millions of eyeballs. And, you know, there looks like, you know, Darren Wolf is moving away from violence and back to romance, and there's all these quarter main rumors, which is fantastic. And, you know, that will, I mean, it could help save GH on ABC. And, look, I'm still in complete denial about One Life. I still think that they're going to look at the numbers for the two and say, oh, forget it, we're keeping One Life on the air. I really do. <laughs> you know, and plus what helps GH is that SoapNet's going away in a few months, and, and ABC at, at 3 o'clock will be the only place to see GH. Yes, exactly. Good point. You know, I, I think it's I think it's clear that ABC wants to create a situation where they have a block of programming that is very homogenized and very easy to digest and very easy to promote and cross promote and cross pollinate and you know to me to my eye they seem to be emboldened by CBS example here. I mean, you know, the ratings for the talk and let's make a deal aren't radically different in either direction from what World Turns and Guiding Light were turning in at the end of their runs. And I think that you could make a strong case for just as you said, you know, for a non-trivial number of viewers out there. The televisions go on in the morning for Price is Right and Young and the Restless and just stay there at CBS for the rest of the day. And it feels like that Mr. Franz and his superiors at ABC are betting pretty hard that a similar situation will take shape on their network, where TVs will come on for the view and stay there. And, you know, the networks can hold steady without having to please 60-some-odd actors and two enormous writing staffs and directing staffs and, you know, stage managers and props and studio space and what have you. Yes, I... I mean, I suppose that's what they're hoping, but as I explained in the book, it's going to take you a really long time to get to a three rating, which is, you know, one life, what's one life now, a 2.8? Sure. I mean, the shows are going to start at, you know, I mean, I keep saying the two's going to have a .08, but, you know, I think I'm being <laughs> charitable. 
But how long does it take to get up to that rating? And will they be patient and wait? No, they won't. And what happens to the affiliates? I mean, look what happened with Jay Leno. I swear that's what's going to happen with the ABC News affiliates. I can't imagine it won't. You've got a new news all over the country. Well, you lost Regis. You lost Oprah. You lost Erica Kane. And what happens to your ratings? And then you go to ABC and go, okay, listen, if you take one life off, I'm not dying whatever is the next show. I'm going to put the King of Queens on. We're, I mean, that's what they did with these NBC affiliates did with Jay Leno, and look how that turned out. You know, we're not going to keep airing it. The numbers are too low. We're losing our audience. Our 11 o'clock news is suffering. I just can't imagine that that won't happen. But, you know, I, I live in my little soap world where I read a book about how great it all is and how to solve it all. And then I think everyone's going to read it. Everyone's going to do it. And we'll have Trump's hopes back on the air by the end of the year. But, you know, we're hearing that that a lot of ABC affiliates are planning to replace Oprah with some some form of an, of an afternoon newscast. And, you know, it, it, you can't imagine that they don't want the strongest lead-in they can possibly have for that. Which would be General Hospital. Sure, and, and, a, right. and a strong lineup in front of General Hospital. But also, think about this. If you put a 4 o'clock newscast on, what happens to your 5 o'clock newscast? You know, like that used to be, I mean, in most parts of the country, it was Oprah at 4 o'clock with like a huge 5 or a 6 rating leading you into your 5 o'clock newscast. Well, what happens when you lose that and it's, well, they already have lost it. I mean, she's airing in reruns in a lot of parts of the country. But, you know, what happens? I mean, I think in New York it's like a 1-5. The 4 o'clock news in New York is a 1-5. That's not a very strong lead into your 5 o'clock news. Absolutely. You know, meanwhile, GH has a solid 2.5. So, I I mean, if we ran the world, it'd be so different, wouldn't it? Talk to me about what it's like to be you. I mean, you know, I've been very lucky because of this show to become good friends with a great woman, uh, Connie Heyman, who wrote for years uh, a, a criticism column for Soap Weekly as Marlena Delacroix. And she mm-hmm. basically had that beat all to herself. And, you know, she has told me some stories that literally made my toes curl about people she wrote about confronting her. And I would imagine that you have a very similar experience <laughs> because, in, you know, in terms of – in terms of so-called traditional soap press, you're basically the only one out there with a regular pa- platform doing criticism, and you know you're doing that in an industry that that has still never really caught into the idea that their work should be fair game for constructive criticism and dissent. I mean, I'm I, you know I'm sure you have people who love you and people who aren't so crazy about you. I mean, I know I do just doing this silly little show here, and I'm sure everybody does no matter what line of work they're in. But you know, how tough is is it for you to do your job effectively anyway, in spite of that? Given the increasingly tough pressures that come along with not only being in the soap industry, but being in the magazine industry, both of which have taken enormous hits of late. Well, I've had the column for about 15 years, and when I have been confronted, which is rare, I've said to people, you know, there's 142 pages, 112 pages, whatever it is in the magazine, and two of them are critical. So 110 a positive, hey, don't miss next week's Bold and the Beautiful, and two pages are, wow, that sure was dumb when Brooke thought she ate a poison berry and, you know, saw a Peter Max poster for a week in a cave. I, you have to be able to take a little criticism, and then I really tried hard over the years to keep it storyline, character, and if I praise someone with their real name, I don't get any complaints about that, but I'm not saying, you know, oh, so-and-so did a terrible job. I'm using their real names to praise them and their character names when it's dumb. And, you know, half the time, people, more than half the time, people say to me, oh, my God, you were so right. I mean, I've had actors call me up and say, thank you so much for writing about how dumb my character is. Because <laughs> wow. they know. I mean, when, there's, you know, I've been confronted. There was one person who I'm very fond of who's a very good actress, but I wrote that her character wasn't really serving. This was about, you know, 
eight years ago or something, wasn't really serving the show and didn't really have a purpose. And she cornered me at one of the Digest anniversary parties, and she said, if you ever write anything again like that about my character, I'm going to run you down with my car. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's a little harsh. <laughs> that seems a little overboard for a two-line mention in a soap opera column, but okay. But, you know, it kind of goes with the territory. And, I mean, it's fun. You know, I, I, I get to say what I think and get paid for it. And, you know, and all the other pages of the magazine were like, rah, you know, wasn't this fantastic? And, you know, here's the real-life story of so-and-so's adoption of a baby and, you know, so-and-so's charity. And look at all the guiding white stars still getting together and bowling in New Jersey for charity. And, you know, couldn't be more positive. And my column is sort of like, really? <laughs> It's just two pages of reality. And as you say, you do keep it about storyline and about character, and you know you don't you don't you're not doing blind items about actors' personal lives and stuff of that sort. Right. You know, and and the other thing, you know, some head writers don't have the same sense of humor as others, but you know, I'm writing about something that I watched this week. It'll come out in the magazine in two weeks. Meanwhile, if you're the head writer, you're already four to six months ahead of that. So, you know, it was a moment in time, and it was good or you know was not so good, and. My job is to sort of chronicle it. And I don't get a lot of mail from people saying you're wrong. But the worst mail I ever got was, you know, when it was Jason Liz versus Jason and Sam. Remember that? Like it was liaison versus Chase Sam. (laughs) And I like Jason and Liz. Like, I'm sorry. I like Jason and Liz together. And it was just like so much hate mail. How dare you? I love Kelly Monaco. I love the character of Sam. I loved her on Port Charles. But, like, I just like Jason with Liz. It's not... You know, I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm not, you know, making a problem. But uh, that was the worst mail I ever got was that I liked one couple over another, which, you know, frankly, I can I can take it. You know, so clearly soap isn't going anywhere. I mean, every damn thing is a soap now, from Glee to Mad Men to Good Wife to whatever. I mean, it's all serialized, continuing entertainment. But where do where do soaps, the, the you know, the shows that we've all grown up watching and adoring, where do they go from here? Well, hopefully... Hopefully they stay on the air, and One Life ends up staying on the air, too. And all the new shows replacing them tag and lose money. And some smart executive comes in and says, you know, we should bring soaps back, or why don't we take the top ten actors out there, Martha Byrne, Kim Zimmer, Michael O'Leary, you know, Katie McLean, whatever, and, and make a new soap around them and try it for six months and see what the numbers are. The numbers will be fantastic, and then soaps will come back and back and back, and we'll have 12 on the air again. And then I'll have to write a sequel to my book. <laughs> so what's on the horizon for Carolyn Hinsey? I assume you're going to be promoting this book for a while. Are you doing book signings or readings? Yes, yeah, so I'm going to do a book tour. I'm actually having a party in Blondie's, the sports bar in New York, where uh, we've thrown a lot of charity things and done a lot of soap-related things over the years for the final episode of All My Children on September 23rd. All fans are welcome, and we'll all watch on the big screen together and, you know, laugh and cry and whatever, and I'll get to meet people, and we can all be together. We did it for the final episode of Another World, if you can believe it, in Blondie's big screen. bar was packed, and it was so much fun. And I just thought we should do that again. So I'll do that, and uh, I'm going starting a book tour in August, and I'll hopefully be coming to a city near everyone. And, you know, the book comes out on hardcover this week, and it's out on Kindle and Nook already, and... It's really fun, and I love the response, and, you know, people have been really kind about it, and it's fun to be an author and to be number one on Kindle pop culture at the moment. Um, so it's it's a whole new horizon, but it's really fun, and I love it. Well, I'll tell you, I've read the book, and I want to tell everybody it is fabulous. It's called Afternoon Delight, Why Soaps Still Matter. 
You can find it at Amazon. You can find it at thesoapbook.com, www.thesoapbook.com. Uh, as she says, you can find it in Kindle. You can find it on iTunes, I believe, yes? It's coming up, yes, this week on iTunes. And, uh, and Nook it's out on. No, all the all the e-book stores and and are you going to be in Barnes and Noble uh, proper in terms of uh, a physical hardback book or? Yes, eventually I I will be. I think I, the the book tour launches first, and then I go to whatever bookstores in you know Dallas, Indianapolis, Chicago, L.A., New York, places like that, and uh, it rolls out from there. So thank you. And I'm also on Twitter. I have a lot of information on Twitter about where I'll be too. Absolutely, and you're just Carolyn Hensley on Twitter, yes? Yes, just Carolyn Hensley. <laughs> And you're on, I think it's Facebook actually Facebook. at Carolyn Hinsey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not just and Carolyn Hinsey. Yes. You're Carolyn Opin- Opinion Hinsey. Uh, yes. And I, I, and some people have said to me, what a coincidence that your maiden name was Opinion, since you grew up to be an opinion writer, which just makes me laugh. <laughs> Because, of course, it's not my maiden name, but I just threw it in there so people would know how to find me. <laughs> it's not funny. It's hilarious. I know. People are funny. I love soap fans. I really do. Well, I'll tell you what. I thank you so much for giving me a bit of your time here to talk about the book and this and that and whatever else pops into our heads. And, and I wish you the best of luck with this book. Not that you need it. It's a fabulous book, and it's going to get a big reaction for you. I have a feeling. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Coming from you means a lot. Thank you very much. Okay. The fabulous Carolyn Hinsey, everybody, on Brandon's Buzz. Brandon's Buzz in the can. Uh, if you're listening, you already know how to find the show, but in case you don't, three places online, blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz really is home base for this show. From there, you can listen to the show. You can uh, see what's coming on the show. You can listen to old episodes of the show. You can leave comments. You can send emails to me. It really is home base for Brandon's Buzz. Again, it's blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. There at the top of any page uh, at brandonsbuzz.com is a blue button marked radio. You click that button, that takes you to a full radio archive of every episode of this show. This is episode number 83. This and all previous 82, all available in the radio archive at Brandon's Buzz. You can also find me at iTunes. I'm on iTunes, guys, right next to Carolyn Hinsey with her book. Uh, Just type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section, click on my logo. From there, you can uh, download individual old episodes as podcasts for playback on the device of your choosing, or you can subscribe to the show and have new episodes automatically download to your library the minute they're uploaded to the music store. So I'm, I'm all over the place. I'm on iTunes. I'm on uh, Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Google the words Brandon's Buzz, and something will pop up that points you in my direction, I promise. And I appreciate you guys, as always, coming in my direction. I appreciate you guys finding me and listening to me, and I hope you continue finding and listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi, everybody out there. This is Eileen Kristen, and I have just been on Brandon's Buzz. This is a great show and a very sophisticated mind, so spread the word, Brandon's Buzz. This is Claire Massey from Tammy Show. And you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Great guy. Great show. Check hey it out. Hey, guys. This is Brett Claywell from One Life to Live, and you're listening to Brandon's Buzz. Hi. This is Lynn Herring on Brandon's Buzz. It's the great entertainment talk show on now. Brandon, I love you. Thanks for having me. So <laughs> if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it Better when you live on a street of dreams Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz 
place to be. Hi, everybody. This is Nicholas Walker. Merci à vous tous. Écoutez Brandon Buzz sur Blog Talk Radio. Bonsoir et à très bientôt.